What's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, the host of Felony Friday. And before we get rolling into today's show, I want to take a quick moment to talk about coffee. That's right, coffee. The Lions of Liberty, we have partnered up with Anarcho Coffee, and we are selling our very own coffee. It's called the Morning Roar. It is a medium dark roast that has cupping notes of lemon lime, caramel, black pepper, and brown sugar. It is delicious. You can pick up some of this coffee by going to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. We have a way there on your first purchase. You can get 10% off, but if you join the Pride, for $10 and up, you can actually get more than that. You can get 15% off every single order. Buy some coffee, support the Lions of Liberty, support another great libertarian company as well. Everybody wins. Lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Welcome to Felony Friday. A presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back. It's another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is the only show where each and every single week I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. You know, one thing that is fantastic about Lions of Liberty that sets us apart from most other podcasts, uh, we do have three different shows. That sets us apart from a lot. It's a variety uh, platform we have here, a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare, our longest running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, show hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's called Electric Liberty Land, and it is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty and Friday is Felony Friday. So that sets us apart. But the other thing that sets, us, that sets us apart is we never miss a day, ever. We don't take vacations. We don't take time off. We always bring you three shows per week every single day out of the year. So this Friday, today, July 5th, when a lot of podcasts are out, you know, hanging out at the beach or the lake or with family and friends, and they're not bringing you content. They're not bringing you the content that you need. Well, here at Lions of Liberty, we care about you, and we know that you expect to get your freaking content no matter what. So July 5th, you get it. December 25th, you get it. Thanksgiving Day, well, you don't get it. It's a Thursday, but the day after Thanksgiving, you get a brand new, a brand spanking new podcast every single day. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday throughout the year. So we're doing a lot of work for you guys. Hopefully you appreciate the work that we do. Uh, A couple ways you can do that. One way, the best way, my favorite way, is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Another way that you can help, just going to wherever you listen to this podcast, whatever app you're on, go to uh, that main home screen or whatever it is and uh or go to the podcast i should say give it a old five star rating leave a nice little review there and click click that subscribe button so you get these episodes be it felony friday be it electric liberty land be it mark's show on monday that you get those episodes delivered right to your phone every single week every single well three times a week 
Today's episode of Felony Friday is an interview with a felon. And if you're familiar with this show, um, that is probably the most um, clamored for, the the, uh, definitely most highly rated episodes that I have here on Felony Friday. So I will introduce my guest in a moment. Uh, She's overcome tremendous obstacles, both from her time in prison and from before prison. So I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear her story. Before I do that, though, Today's episode of Felony Friday is the 183rd episode. That means the show notes page can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF183. Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Tisha Crossland. Uh, She's here today to share her experience in the criminal justice system. Uh, She did time in both the federal and the L.A. County Jail and has some uh, some stories to share about both, as well as stories about her background and things she's learned from her experience. And Tisha has a passion. She's wanting to change and reform this broken criminal justice system that we have in this country. She wants to end mass incarceration. And I'm really excited for you guys to get to know her and get to know her story. Tisha, welcome to Felony Friday. Hi, welcome. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show and thank you for uh, joining uh, the Felony Friday and sharing your story with my audience. And one of the of first things that I like to do with uh, with my guests is just so everyone can get to know you and, uh, you know, sort of get, get to know, get a feel for, you know, your background mm-hmm. and <clears throat> everything like that. If you could just start out by giving us just talking about where you grew up, sort of what your, you know, what your life was like before, um, you know, you got tied up in the criminal justice system. Um, I grew up mainly in San Diego, California, but I lived in New York for about three years and I lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with my father. Um, I grew up basically in the crack era where it was horrible. You know, most kids my age, around seven, eight, nine, you know, their parents were in the addiction of crack. So I grew up during that era in New York and in San Diego. So I seen a lot of like horrific things at a young age growing up out in the streets of New York and in San Diego. I moved to San Diego when I was about 10 with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And I say about, 13 was when I first started getting in trouble with the judicial Mm -hmm. system. And I caught my first case when I was 13 for assault and battery and robbery. Yeah. So how old were you the first time you remember seeing, you know, drug paraphernalia or any, you know, any, any sort of somebody selling drugs and anything like that? Probably about eight, about eight eight years years old. old. Yeah. Eight years old. Cause I lived in Harlem, New York. So, you know, during that era, it, it was horrible for a child to grow up in. And see so things. that was, I mean, was that just, I mean, that was just life. That's that's what you expected to see, right? Yeah. My grandmother tried to like shield me from it and everything. And my mother was in her addiction, you know, so she was there, but she was in and out. You know, it was more of my mm-hmm. grandmother there raising me than my mother. You know, my mother did her fair part. Don't get me wrong, but. She was so far in her addiction that she couldn't balance the two, you know. So what was what was she addicted to, if you don't mind me? Crack cocaine. Crack cocaine. Yeah, Yeah, crack cocaine. So what uh what necessitated the move from New York to San Diego? My grandmother was sick and my mother was 
out, you know, doing her thing. And my grandmother couldn't take care of me. So she sent me to my aunt and uncle in San Diego. Mm-hmm. So I started living with them when I was 10. Well, she sent me to my father first. But then my mother begged and pleaded and cried for her to have me back to New York. But then my grandmother got sicker and my mother got worse in her addiction. So my grandmother just couldn't take it no more. So she just sent me away to California. And how different was like, I don't know how clear to, clearly you remember that time, but like how different mm-hmm. was life from New York to California? Was it a big shock, a big change? I mean, at that age, changing schools and all that stuff's got to be a big it deal. Was, it, it was a big shock, you know, because I was used to it just being me and my grandmother, my mother, when my mother was there, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to go to my other grandmothers and seeing my brothers and all my family that was in New York and then to just go to San Diego and it's just, my aunt, my uncle, and my three cousins, and me. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't all the rest of the family and everything. So that was like a big shocker to be, you right, know, right. at that age, at 10 years old, and they just uproot you and move you, not just all across, you know, town. No, they right. moved me across country. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was a shocker, you know. It was a shocker. And I think that played a part, too, in me misbehaving, you know, getting in trouble in school and, fighting and just not caring, you know? Mm-hmm. So you said 13, 13 years old was the first time that you, you got, did you get arrested or what, what happened there? I ended up getting arrested at school afterwards. Cause like a couple days later, the girl told and I got arrested and then I ended up being on probation and having to take anger management classes and pay like a restitution, like 25 or $30 restitution. Mm-hmm. But I didn't go to juvenile hall then, but I was arrested. Okay, so did that was it? Did that change your behavior at all, or what? What happened from there? Not at all. I think it heightened it. You know, I just really didn't care then. Mm-hmm. You know, I just really started getting in trouble a lot in school and fighting and the gangs and doing all that. And then I went to juvenile hall finally when I was fifteen. And the first time I went, I went for like a month and a half. What was that like? At first, I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm, I'm not going home. They kept telling me, like, you're not going home. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, and then once I seen I wasn't going home after the first court date, I was just like, oh, OK. And I just really didn't care. I was like, oh, I could be here. I'm gonna still do what I want. You know, I was still that, had that, was that the other. The other kids telling you you weren't going home, or is this the, the this was the, the the probation people and everything? Yeah. yeah, they told me I wasn't going home, so I was like, oh, okay, you know. So, so how long did you end up staying? That in time, yeah. that time I stayed forty five days, and then they put me on probation, and um, that was another fight robbery too. That one, when I got arrested for that, and. They put me on probation. I think I had house arrest. I had all kinds of stuff, but it still didn't stop me. You know, I Mm -hmm. still kept getting in trouble, kept getting in trouble. Then I went to a camp a while after that. Then after camp, I ended up going back again. And then that's when they sent me to the California Youth Authority. And how, how old were you when that happened? I think I was 16 when I went to the California Youth Authority. What, What is the California Youth Authority? It's a juvenile prison. Okay. (laughs) It's a juvenile prison, literally, you know, and it was no better than adult prison. You know, you got a bunch of kids in there who they medicate, 
and feel, mm. oh, if we give them psych meds, they'll calm down or they're angry. Let's give them psych meds. Mind you, they never call our parents and ask our parents if it's okay if we can take these medications. Wow. Because they feel like we're a ward of the state. We're not a ward of the state. Our parents never signed over their rights or anything like that. Who are you to just give us psych meds, you know, that messes up in the long run? So there was a lot of fighting and violence, you know, and it was co-ed then. So a lot of girls were ending up pregnant, having kids, hmm. all kinds of nonsense. Yeah. You know, wow. is that, does that still, do you know, if, does that still go on? Is that still the same setup in California? They still have, they still have the California youth authorities. Yes. But I don't yeah. think it's co-ed anymore. But they still have them. Yeah. They still have those going on. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. It is. (laughs) So you're 16 years old and you're in the California Youth Authority. How much time did you end up spending there? I think it was 14, 15 months. 14, 15 months. So you get out, what, you're 17 or are you 18 Mm -hmm. at that point? 17, 18, 18, 18. Yeah. So during this time, you're not going to school, right? There's no, you're not being educated. They sent us to school. Yeah, they sent us to school. I actually got an AA degree while I was in there. And they send you to school. They make you go to school. You know, they make you do chores, basically. You know, you Mm -hmm. can have little jobs, odds and ends jobs and stuff like that. But you do have to go to school. And if you don't go to school, you get in trouble. You do get punished. (laughs) Yeah. But like what type of, was it, was it a quality? I mean, how, how high quality of an education was it? I can't imagine that. It it wasn't high quality because a lot of the time they'd put on movies, you know, some Disney movies or something like that. Or the teachers uh, give you some book and it's like at a third grade level because so many people just wanted to pass the test and get out of there from doing the little test that they Mm -hmm. end up putting them in third grade level classes when really they're reading at a 12th grade level. You know, because they don't right. sit and tell you the importance of getting your education and putting the right answers on the test and really reading through it thoroughly. You know, but the education there, it, you had like very few teachers that really would teach you. Mm-hmm. You know, very few. I mean, this is just, I mean, to me, not to go off topic, but I mean, this <laughs> is just so clearly. I mean, you have kids like yourself. I mean, you're going through your own thing. You've been moved across the country. You, there's mm-hmm. issues with with your family, and you're in this situation. Obviously, something's wrong. I mean, some it's, right. it's not you're not <laughs> you're not going down a good path. And I'm sure that that uh, the California Youth Authority was full of kids in the same situation. Oh yes, and no one's getting any help, right? I mean, no, it's it worked. You know, it, it actually made a lot of us worse. The sad situation about that is. I would say probably 55% of the girls that were in the California Youth Authority ended up with me in the state penitentiary. Really? When I was in the state penitentiary or in the LA County Jail, or some of them were already sentenced to life sentences, but you couldn't leave the California Youth Authority until you were 18, and then they'd send you to state prison. Yeah, so it's almost it's just like a feeder for the, that, uh, that's all it for was. the system. Yeah. That's all it was. That that that's all it is, you know. It's just, oh, let's just put them in here, you know, and let them kill each other, fight each other, do whatever they do. Who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that it, it's a sad situation, especially in California. It's really sad and sick. Yeah. Like how many? I mean, long time ago, probably, but like roughly, how many kids were in this were in this prison? Really? Like, was it hundreds, thousands? I mean, I would say thousands because there was. I think there was like 11 units and each unit held probably about 200 or something oh, inmates. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
And then they had like the ma- the boys fire camp right there and the girls fire camp. So yeah. What do you mean by fire camp? People that went out and fought fires. They would send the kids out to fight fires? Or? Oh yeah. I, I believe you had to at least be 18 to be okay. in fire camp. Yeah. Yeah, probably not getting fires. Probably not getting paid either or getting paid. No, like, they 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 actually did get paid. I think it was yeah. like five dollars a fire or something. Yeah, <laughs> some, something yeah, some something outrageous. Ridiculous. Yeah, something yeah. ridiculous to put your life on the line for five dollars. Right, you right. Know? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, so, sorry to spend so much time on this, but this is it's just okay. I, I think it's I think it's important. Um mm-hmm. so co- coming out of there, um what what happens next in your life? I still was angry and wild. I had ended up getting a job, you know, and doing all doing what I was supposed to do, but I was still, you know, in the street life, gang banging and hanging out and doing certain things. And then I had met a boyfriend when I was in the California Youth Authority. And he was from LA. And then I was going back and forth San Diego to LA and he was doing illegal activities. And mm-hmm. I got involved with that. And that's how I ended up in federal prison because of that. You know, and I went when I was barely 20 years old, I had just turned 20 years old and got arrested. What was the, what was the crime? Bank robberies, bank robberies. But they sent me back to California Youth Authority to finish out my parole on that. Mm -hmm. Then the feds came and picked me up when it was time for me to leave from there on my 21st birthday. And then the feds came and they took me. So, so bank robberies. So, mm-hmm. were they like bank robberies, like you like you see in the movies, or were you you know you're going in and a little um, of both, yeah, a little they, of both, but more of sliding the notes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, were they? I mean, quote unquote, successful like bank robberies, or like, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, they were. They didn't catch me till like a year later, I believe. It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how how did they catch you then? Cameras don't lie. That's all I can say. Yeah. Oh, you wor- so <laughs> Cameras just- don't lie. <laughs> yeah. And when I got arrested, they said my car was used in a bank robbery, but I know it wasn't. But that's how they ended up mm-hmm. finding me. So what was your sentence then for that? As they say in the feds, 63 months. So it was like five years, I believe, something like okay. that. I hate how they do that. Everything, years. everything yes. in months. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> make it sound like a hundred years or something when they do that. So yeah, yeah I had yeah. sixty-three months. Yeah, so they so, gave me that. So five five years in the federal system. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what was what was that experience like? What, what where were you? What part of the country were you out in California or in Danbury, Connecticut? I started mm-hmm. I started in California, like going through the the MDCs and, you know, the counties and all that. But being at my mom and my family, my mom had moved back to New York. So I wanted to be close to her. She moved to California, but then when I got arrested, she moved back to New York. So I was like, okay, well, majority of my family's there. So I'll just go to Danbury, Connecticut. That's the closest one out there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I asked to go there and that's where they had sent me. And what, uh, what, when was this, what year was this? I was there from 99 to 2001. Okay. And then in 2001, LA County Jail, well, LA County Sheriff's 
came to me in the feds about a whole nother case that happened with my boyfriend then and some other people and they expedited me back to Ca- uh, California. So this is a, for a separate crime. Yes. Wow. For a, a state crime. So and they, they got me. What was that? What was that sentence? I fought that case. That's when I was in LA County for six years. I was fighting that case. And then they still sent me up to state prison afterwards. I ended up doing 12 for that sentence. 12 you said you, you fought, so you fought the case. So you weren't convicted yet? No. You were. I was going back and forth to court for six years in LA County jail with what? no sunlight, <laughs> no fresh air. <laughs> For six years, yes. What? How? What? Yes. How does that happen? What, what was when you the? Had, because it was a murder case. It was a okay. murder, case, you know. And in LA County, or basically any county, really, when you're going back and forth to court, you're going back and forth to court. I mean, I know mm-hmm. people that sat in LA County jail for like twelve years fighting a case. They don't care, you know. Yeah. So I sat there for six years, going back and forth to court and enduring so much while there. I mean, if you ever read up on LA County jail, you'll know the conditions are horrific there. Can you give us a a example of of something? When you go through, like when you go through booking, I mean, you have Mm -hmm. people that are kicking drugs, schizophrenic, all kinds of different things is feces here, just everything. And then they want to give you used underclothes and nasty, stinky clothes to put on. You know, and you're sitting down there all night and they give you these bologna sandwiches. You know, every process you're going through, bologna, 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 you know, and the juice and they're yelling and screaming. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's horrible. It is horrible. And and you probably had all kinds of different people cycling through there. Yeah. All the time. Yes. All the time. So what ended up happening with your case then? I ended up getting 12 years on that case. And Twelve years, mm-hmm. and they gave you credit for the six served. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and the rest of the final, final six you served in the in the state prison. Yeah, in uh, what is it called? CCWF, Central California Women's Facility, the world's largest prison, basically women's really? prison. Yeah, it's the world's largest women's prison. Wow. We have death row on there. Yeah, what were the conditions like there? Eight women to us a room with one toilet and one shower and two sinks. Wow. Yeah. No privacy. <laughs> None whatsoever. And I mean, they put you in rooms with females that have been down 30 years, 20 something years, women that feel like they're never going home or women that killed their kid or women that killed their parents, you know, they, they, they don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, they integrate everybody. So you could be yeah, serving with people who are in for life and you're getting out in, in six years or mm-hmm. every one year, if whatever right. it is. Right. But I ca- I stayed in rooms with people that had long terms. I didn't want to live with people that didn't have any time because I had already been down for so long already mm-hmm. when I went up there that I didn't want to be around people that, you know, were going home in a day, a couple months or something because they don't care. Those type of people didn't care. They didn't care if they got your room hit by the police or they'd be out there acting crazy and doing crazy stuff. 
mm-hmm. and it gets you in trouble, you know, or have your room hit. So no, right. I just stayed away from those type of people. So at, at what point did you really have a, uh, you know, a shift in, in your life, a shift in your mentality? Cause I mean, obviously lo- looking at you today, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're successful. Um, you're right. <laughs> So what, what what happened? I mean, what was the, I would what was say the turning point? Probably like my last year before I came home, I started like really focusing on what I need to do. And I was like, mm-hmm. I am not doing this ever again. I was like, it'd be 15 years I did when I go home. I was like, there's no way I could ever do this again. So when I came home, like I always tell people, I just hit my feet, hit the ground and I was running doing what Mm -hmm. I need to do. You know, I immediately signed up for school, but they don't prepare you for when you're coming home and letting you know about student loans, the importance of credit, the importance of, you know, making sure you have money here and savings. And they don't prepare you for none of that. And mind you, I was barely 20 years old when I went in. So I didn't have anybody, you know, telling me, oh, you got to do this. You know, I didn't, I wasn't paying bills. I wasn't doing any of that, you know? And then when you come out, it's like, people feel like, oh, you're supposed, you should know that. No, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't know any of this. Nobody of ever told me. They don't have pre-parole to prepare you for when you're coming home to let you know this needs to be done. That needs to be done. I didn't know any of this, you know, and with me doing that, signing up for school, I did get my medical assisting certificate, but I still owe student loans. You know, I was using credit cards to pay on student loans. That put me in debt. You know, then I got laid off from my job. That put me in debt. You know, so they don't let you know any of this. You know, when we, when you get out in California, the parole doesn't help you with anything. They said they don't have the funding. So mm-hmm. it's like you have to go and find your own job and they give you $200 gate money. And it's like, okay, here you go. It's like, okay, $200, no job, no Did you clothes. have a driver's? Did you have a driver's license? Probably not. I ha- yeah. No, I didn't yeah. even have a driver's license when I got arrested. No, nothing, you know, so... I had to just do everything over. They give you a voucher to go get your ID, but everything else you have to do on your own. And with the $200 gate money you have, and you have to find employment and they give you a list of all these companies that hire felons. But most of these companies are like out of business or, oh yeah, we'll call you. But then it's like, okay, well, what have you been doing for the past 15 years? Well, you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be felony friendly, aren't you? You know, that shouldn't even matter what I did the last 15 years. Right. You know, or you don't have enough experience, you know, because they don't teach you anything while you're in there. They're not giving you legit typing classes or legit ways to set up an email account. And I, we didn't learn any of that. You know, yeah. if it wasn't for my cousin and friends showing me and teaching me certain things, I would have never knew how to do any of that. And that's what's important with people when they come home is a support team. If you don't have the support, you, you, you more than likely will fail. You know, and that's the main thing because so many people come out and they're lost because they've done so many years and they don't have support. So they result back to what they're used to, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially with, with how fast technology is changing today. I mean, you were in for 12 years. It's an entire <laughs> 15 years. It's an entirely yeah. different, different world. I mean, oh, yeah. like, yeah. When you went in, I'm sure th- there were cell phones, but they were the kind of cell phones all you did Flip. was talk on. All you did was talk on yes, the phone. Now exactly. you, you come out, and there's the last thing people do is you use their cell phone to talk, but they're on the internet, your text messaging, your Facebook, Instagram, right? I mean, but, right. 
So what, what was that? What was that like? Uh, how hard was that to adjust to? Just the technological aspect of it. I'm still learning, and I've been home six years. <laughs> well, you, I've been home. You're doing well. I'm you're doing great learning. with this, this this Zoom call. I mean, you, you picked that up yeah. easily. So. I don't know if you've I done mean, it before, but no, I haven't. I just okay. I'm more of a hands-on person, so a lot of things I am I I was able to grasp, you know. Mm-hmm. But like the whole sending emails and making sure that looks correct, you know, and setting up a resume and all that, that, that wasn't easy. You know, I'm like, Oh, I thought it was just, Oh, I just type it up and make it look pretty. No, (laughs) you know, you have to really make it look presentable when you go for jobs. So that was kind of a hassle. And then I would say just basically that. And when I was in school doing like PowerPoint programs and Excel and all that because they'd want you to do it like this. And I'm like, um, you know, I wasn't afraid or embarrassed to tell my story because I would tell them, you know, look, I need help. I've been gone, you know, for this amount of years and none of this was going on when I went away. So can you please help me? So the teachers would help me. And then I had classmates that would help me, you know, Mm -hmm. and show me how to do things. (laughs) So if we can just go back to... Uh Um, you talked about making the decision that you want to change your life. You didn't want to go back to prison anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to kind of dig into that a little bit. So, I mean, to, to say that is one thing, but to do it is another thing. So sure. w- what, do you, what do you attribute being able to, to stick to that, uh, to be able to, you know, because that's, I mean, that's not easy really anything in life to stick to yeah. a, a goal like that, especially when your entire life leading up to that point. I mean, that was that was all you knew, right? Right. So what, what do you attribute being able to make that change to? I think more than anything, because I lost my father when I was incarcerated. Okay. Sorry to hear that. His mother and his sister. And it was only him and his sister and his mother. So it was like, I felt like I lost everybody on my father's side, except for my siblings, which is all Mm -hmm. brothers, you know? So I basically made a promise to my father, you know, that I'm not doing this again. And I wanted to make him proud, you know, Mm -hmm. and show him that I can change. My father changed. My father was in his addiction for many years, but he got clean. He was the head director of the boys homes in Broward County in Florida. You know, my father, had a passion for this type of stuff too, helping troubled teens. And my passion is to help troubled teens and to end LWAP, which is life without the possibility of parole. You know, so that was just something I told myself and I promised my father, I said, I'm not doing this again. You know, and my mother too, because my mother sacrificed a lot. She relapsed a few times while I was away, but my mother made sure I was okay my whole 15 years all while working as a manager at Jack in the Box. You know, my mother would get on the bus on a Greyhound from San Diego to LA and come and see me because she doesn't have a car. You know, she would ride, they had like this bus that came up to Northern California to the prison. It was called Chowchilla Express. They'd pick our parents up in different spots all through California and bring them. My mom would go to the bus station at midnight and come and see me and ride that 10 hours or whatever, just to make sure she came to see me every three or six months. You know, so it's just, I think about everybody that sacrificed for me and I didn't want to let them down, you know, 
because people always doubt us when we come home. Oh, they're a convicted felon. Oh, they're going to keep doing this. They can't keep doing that. No, mind you, majority of the time I was getting in trouble. I was a kid. I was a lost wild teen, you know, but I came home a grown woman. And at 35 years old, what do I look like still out here committing crimes and doing craziness? And I see a young girl out here that's about to do things that led me up into doing 15 years in prison. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I can help her and stop her, at least I know I've changed at least one thing, you know, and help somebody. And I know everything that I did was not in vain, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's why that's my main thing. I just kept remembering and telling myself, I don't want to do this no more. I can't like, you know, who, who would do this? And then I had roommates that had life sentences, mind you, one of them was a life without the possibility of the parole, of parole and another one was 15 a life. They're both home. You know, so I just think about stuff like that where I had roommates that felt like they weren't coming home. You know, I had life sentences and that could have been me with the life sentence. So what do I look like? That's like a slap in the face to them. Like I had a chance to come home and here they are fighting to come home. And here I am coming back. Like, no, that, that that's yeah. not right at all. You know? So that's, I just kept making promises to my father, my mother, and myself. You know, I said, I, I'm not doing it ever again. That's some strong motivation for sure. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, because the prison system just got worse. You know, even though laws are changing and everything, but it's just like, I would never, it's just a waste. You know, it's mm-hmm. a waste of life. It's just, you know, I lost 15 years of my life. I could have been doing something totally different with those 15 years. But there I was sitting in prison, you know, for stupidity and for things that started at a young age where no one wanted to listen (laughs) to -hmm. what I was trying to say or try to help me in the right way, steer me the right way. So, yeah, no, I I could never do prison again. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's no way unless I'm visiting. (laughs) That's (laughs) it. (laughs) So, I know you mentioned that you you have a passion for criminal justice reform and mm-hmm. passion for ending mass incarceration. So, um, you know, what types of things either are you doing now or do you really want to get involved with doing to uh, to help uh, to see that happen? Almost definitely. I'm connecting with a lot of different people as far as with ending LWAP. That's the main one I'm focused okay. on right now is because I have a close loved one who's in Arkansas prison and they're like the forgotten they have nobody out there fighting for them. They're still on these old Jim Crow laws, you know, the mm-hmm. governor and everyone else in the governor's office just feel like, oh, you sent us to Elwap, forget you. You know, I have a list of names of probably 20 something men that my loved one sent me who have either not made it past the screening stage or get denied or just forgotten. And they've sent in their clemency paperwork four and five times and they won't make it past the screening stage. These men have been down 30, 40 years and have accomplished so much more than so many people out here on the free world. And they could Mm -hmm. be home helping change and do certain things. But Arkansas is just like, whatever. I just sent the governor last Monday about 20 letters. The governor's office called me yesterday morning stating that they received all those letters and that they're going to look into the clemency paperwork of my loved one. And that I only need to send them one letter and I can send it with my loved one's clemency paperwork. But I just want them to see that somebody does care about these people, you know, and I mm-hmm. think 
with the judicial system, they misconstrued things where our families feel like, oh, you're sentenced to life without the possibility of parole or life. You're never going home. So the families are just naive. You know, they don't realize there's appeal processes. There's different things that you can fight. There's different, Mm -hmm. all types of different laws passing. You know, just because you're sentenced to this doesn't mean you're going to stay there for that sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I'm trying to get people to realize, especially with Senate passing the bills as far as with they're saying that anybody under the age of 26 they don't have the mind frame of an adult yet. That's why rental car companies only rent to either right, 25 right. or older. Unless I would you say that, a, that, that age might actually be 30. I would say people. so too, about 30, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, they're yeah. saying that and there's all these laws passing. So it's like, okay, you want to say you want to stipulate only for these people, but no, if mm-hmm. it says clearly that a person was 26 or younger, they weren't in an adult mind frame. So technically they still fall under juvenile laws, you know, but mm-hmm. it's just, it's so many different things you have to fight with this stuff, you know, but I won't give up until I win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, all, it's always amazed me how, you know, there is this segment of people and I, th- I think it is, it's becoming a fewer, a lesser and lesser percentage, mm-hmm. but who like they're like you know scorched earth. Once you do you know one bad thing, um, once you make one you know one one mistake, then forget about you. Right. But it's it's so it's so backwards to. I mean, how could you not want people to change? I mean, if you don't want people exactly. to change and get better, <laughs> then they're not going to. I mean, then exactly. at the end of the day, like I mean, most people are going to get out of prison. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's a public safety issue. So you want right. people when they come out of prison to be rehabilitated, to have skills, right. to yeah, right, um, right. Just blows my mind. They um, they won't, but they're they're just not even considering these gentlemen. And it's like, you know, these men have degrees, they have certificates. Like they went in and they they tried. You know, they're doing what they need to do, but also the programs are limited too. You know, mm-hmm. but if they utilize these programs that did what they're supposed to do, why can't you review them after 20, 25 years and see how, how much they've accomplished? Right. You know, why do you feel like, Oh, you were sentenced to life without forget you? No, maybe I was, might've been only 18, you know, 19 when I committed this crime, you don't know the whole stipulations or what type of mind frame I was in or what I was dealing with. You know, why don't you give me a second chance? Everybody deserves a second chance, yeah. you know? It- but really, they, you, they feel like you don't. <laughs> you can be an entirely different person from the age of 20 to the age of 35. Exactly. I know that. I know that because I, I am. I'm 36 Me years too. old right now. Me I'm too. 100% different than when I was right. when I was 20. Um, right. And I, I, just, I, can't, I can't believe that people can't, can't wrap their mind around that, um, mm-hmm. but more, that more people can. I think a lot of people are starting to understand um, those changes, especially when we're starting to talk about there's there's people still in prison today um, for selling pot, for selling marijuana, oh life gosh. in prison for selling yes. marijuana. Yes. Which, <laughs> that's uh, just, uh, Where it's no, legal and I don't know how many states yeah. across the U.S. now, you know, so yeah, it's no, like, <laughs> come on, that's not violent. Like, who are you harming? Some people were mm-hmm. really trying to feed their family, you right. know, or when I was in the feds, they gave they were giving people like hundred something years because they had this amount of drugs. And I'm like, but who did they harm? They didn't harm anyone. Like, 
You know, they were trying to make easy money. Okay, I get it. But why punish them for the rest of their lives? Like, that, that's crazy. And a lot of these women, these are women, you know, these are mothers, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, the the slogan for this show, I don't know if you can see it up there. No, no victim, no crime, no victim, no time. So exactly. That's, that's what it should be. Um, mm-hmm. So I got, I got one more question for you and okay. it's a, it's a forward looking question. So <laughs> put, put on your, your forward thinking hat. So f- five years from now, your, your ideal situation, wh- where do you see yourself five, five years from now? What, what type of things do, do you see yourself doing? I'm going to still be in this fight until if, if LWAPs are not ended, I'm still going to be in this fight five years down the line, but I'm praying within the next year or two, it's ended, you know, want to be happily married, living somewhere, owning a house, have good credit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, have some kids and just still in this fight with ending mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And I hope to one day have a group home for girls with mentoring and, you know, teaching them the tools to become better women, not wild girls, you know, out here doing crazy stuff that would get Mm -hmm. them in trouble or having kids at a young age. You know, I just want to have, I wouldn't say just a nonprofit because everybody has to make a living, you know, you have bills, but nonprofit, but profitable, not just with financial, but seeing these young girls succeed in life. Mm-hmm. You know, and not go down the road that I went down and struggling when they come home to make it and get on their feet and be somebody, you know, and show a society that they can make it. So that would be more that would be more of what I want to do in the next five years. That's where I see myself. But my mm-hmm. main thing in LWAP. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm confident that you will, you know, you will that that future will happen for you um, yes. if you. I mean, you've already had one amazing change in your life. Um, yes. So the things you can accomplish just by continuing to build on that, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's there's nothing standing in your way. So I'm sure you, you can know. do it. <laughs> right. And uh, that's uh, that's really it for the show. I have no more questions. Anything else you wanna you wanna plug or, or, or talk about? Any any parting words before before we say goodbye? And they'll walk. And they'll <laughs> that's walk. my parting walk. In life without the possibility of parole. End it. I like it. I can get on board with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Tisha. Well, th- thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I mean, I know that it's probably not easy looking back at a little bit, pa- parts of your past that you're not proud right. of. But uh, I think it's it's important because maybe there's somebody out there listening who maybe is in that struggle right now. And they right. see someone, they hear this podcast from someone like you who's made their way out of that and it's on the other side and it gives some hope for sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks well, for coming I, I on. I appreciate, I appreciate the invite. Thanks. All right. All right. You have a good one. All right. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? Then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. 
Listen to We Are Libertarians at wearelibertarians.com. My name is Chris Spengel, and I host a show where we talk about the stories you and your friends are talking about, and then we give you libertarian solutions so you sound smarter when you're talking to your friends. We're going to make you sound like a genius. Tune in now at wearelibertarians.com. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Look no further. Blast off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The Blast Off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blastoff. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blastoff. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode with Tisha Crossland. Uh, I mean, just another... I feel like I say this every single week when I bring on people who have been through the struggle of prison. Uh, most of the time, they've served exorbitant sentences that really have done nothing to help them. And in spite of, you know, the criminal justice system not giving them the skills they need, uh, you know, not giving them the support they need or the rehabilitation they need to be successful on the outside, uh, they make a decision. And I guess there's a couple of things that I have found in common uh, between individuals who find success after prison. Uh, there's one thing, there is a point in time where there is a decision made. Uh, when a decision is made that you're not going to accept uh, the life you had before, that you're not going to go back into prison. So there's a change being made. And Tisha talked about um, wanting to make that change to make her, her dad proud, to make her mom proud, uh, because her family had been through uh, so much and had gone out of their way to support her in, d- in different ways, going on a bus to see her a couple times every every few months and, and to support her while she was in prison. So that's the one thing, the decision. And the second thing is the follow through, which is not easy. I mean, you could gloss over that and say decisions made and you, they just follow through. But the amount of distractions... Um, it's so hard not to get pulled back into patterns of behavior. And you're going to think about this even outside of uh, a situation like this, a situation as um, you know drastic as going back to prison, but just in your daily life. Think about how hard it is to change your patterns and behaviors, your habits in your daily life. It's freaking difficult, man. Um, if you're somebody who has trouble, you know, waking up in the morning and you struggle, you know, you're getting out of bed and you never know what you're, you know, you get out of bed and then just kind of the, the day just attacks you. If you try to implement a system uh, of getting up and, you know, doing X, maybe you're going to, you know, work out, then you're going to drink coffee, then you're going to eat something, then you're going to, um, you know, maybe uh, learn something new. If you try to implement that system, that is so hard to do. And, that is so small compared to someone that is changing from coming out of prison when it'd be so easy to fall back into old habits, yet finding a new direction, new things to focus on, and doing it against all odds without having 
you know, anything to fall back on um, without, you know, obviously coming out, especially we talked about on the show, so many people, almost everyone who comes out of prison today who has served even just a couple years in prison, the technological gap is enormous and there's nothing being done to, to, to prepare people for that. So just getting past that, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, uh, a huge accomplishment. And I have a lot of respect for Tisha for pushing through this. And she's talked about the struggles she's had with debt and mistakes she's made. And, um, you know, a lot of people have those struggles. People who haven't been to prison have those struggles. A lot of people struggle with debt. So there's definitely nothing to be ashamed of there. And she said that they're not taught that in prison. I almost jumped in for a minute. Uh, they don't teach that anywhere. They don't teach people how to balance a checkbook, how to do their taxes, how to uh, start a business, how to save money. Nobody teaches you that unless you go out on your own and uh, and learn it. I don't think there's any uh, high schools out there. Well, maybe there are some that are finally starting to teach some classes on that, hopefully. But just another great story. One more thing I want to highlight, this being the 5th of July. So I want you guys to, first of all, you know, a lot of libertarians, some of my listeners are libertarians. Some are from the left, some are from the right. But for different reasons, sometimes people maybe especially in the criminal justice system, who those of us who are activists and trying to change the system, maybe we get a little bit frustrated um, with the lack of progress. You know, we'd like to be further than we are. There was the first step back, which was great. There's been a lot of commutations, a lot of pardons, things like that. But at the end of the day, we're still not where we want to be. And we don't have the freedoms for individuals in this country um, that, that they deserve, which is frustrating. But... This 4th of July weekend, I would like everyone out there to remember that you have your freedom, that you are a free person. This is not, I mean, this is the freest country in the world. Um, Of course, there's limitations on that. But just remember, there are people stuck in prison right now for nonviolent offenses, for uh, nonviolent drug crimes, things like that, serving ridiculous, exorbitant sentences. So just remember, the freedom that you have today, others would literally do anything to have. So appreciate your freedom, my friends. Appreciate your freedom. With that being said, I'm just going to say one more thing. If you like this show, please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Liberty to join today. That's all I got, guys. Happy 4th of July weekend. This is John Odermatt. Signing off, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.